Hello, everyone. Amelia Taylor-Hawkberg here, Arcanex Managing Editor. The interview you're about to hear was recorded live as part of Arcanex's podcasting event series, Next Up, held at Los Angeles' Architecture and Design Museum on October 29th. We've hosted Next Ups before at Giant Jai Gallery in Los Angeles and at the inaugural Chicago Architecture Biennial. This time around, we're focusing on the LA River and the constellation of issues surrounding its redevelopment. With so much controversy and history surrounding the river, we wanted to do justice to its complexity, so we gathered a vast range of professionals, from artists and architects to planners and journalists, to share their perspective. We hope you enjoy this interview from Next Up, the LA River. So we have Julia Meltzer. She's the director and founder of Clock Shop, a nonprofit arts organization that partners with the California State Parks to do programming on a plot of land adjacent to the LA River. And um, we have Elizabeth Timmy, who is the co-director of LA Moss, an urban design and architecture nonprofit. She sits on Recode LA, a city initiative to rewrite LA's zoning code, and is also an adjunct faculty member of the Woodbury University School of Architecture. To begin, I, I was hoping you guys could just tell us a bit about your organizations and the kind of projects you do in relation to the river. So Clock Shop is an arts organization that I founded over 10 years ago. And one of the projects that we do is the Bowtie Project. But I'd say largely our mission is to commission and work with artists and writers on new projects. And many of those projects are public projects. And uh, more recently, I think a big part of our mission and our goal is to work with larger institutions and to encourage them to work in different ways and to bring in new audiences. So, for example, the Bowtie Project is something that came about in 2014 when we did a project called Frogtown Futuro, which was looking at LA River revitalization and how it's affecting Elysian Valley, uh, the community where our space is based and where we've been there since 2002. It's on Clearwater Street. The end of our block is the LA River. My partner and I have lived there for nine years and now it's our workspace. So during that time, specifically in the last four to five years, we've seen a lot of change in the neighborhood. And we wanted to look at how that change was affecting very specifically our neighborhood. And then we also wanted to do a project on the river. And that's when our partnership with California State Parks started. So we're, we're a kind of cross-disciplinary group of a bunch of young uh, policy thinkers, architects, designers, artists, engagement specialists, urban planners. I'm the co-founder along with Mia Lair. And LA Moss was created in an environment in 2012 where there was a lot of discussion around this space between community need and development pressure. And, you know, it was really that conversation that Mia and I were having about how there wasn't a for-profit model in the architectural space that could speak to these issues or iterate through them with kind of temporary projects that were hands-on community-based. And so it's me and about seven other people my age that are really interested in helping communities shape their own growth. And we moved to Elysian Valley two and a half years ago and undertook a project in, in partnership with Clock Shop and Julia to get community uh, feedback on a kind of co-visioning process as to what the development, the kind of investment in the neighborhood and what the development equity would really bring about for the community. And so we partook in that project, which was Frogtown Futuro, 
And it was, you know, a, it started off with the idea that what we would do is a kind of community checklist or a community manifesto. But it quickly became clear that what, if, if we could do anything, it would be to shape policy. And so we went to the city with kind of recommendations on how to shape the queue conditions where it's a very temporary overlay that's going to affect, that is affecting the neighborhood in between the recoding process. And it was an attempt to get ahead of all of these development projects and say that there needed to be a mechanism for for something that was more kind of about affordability rather than density. We kind of had a lot of shocking surprises, which was that the community wanted everything to stay the same no matter what, which it, you know, two and a half years ago was surprising. But now with the Neighborhood Integrity Initiative and Love in Santa Monica, I don't think any of us are surprised by that sentence. However, in the climate, uh, you know, two years ago, that was surprising. So we've also done kind of pilot installations and we're kind of known as the hands-on doers that, that kind of use our expertise to do things physically to start a deeper conversation about what should be done in, in, in these neighborhoods. How do you balance that uh, orientation towards social engagement and social equity with strong interest with both of your organizations in art and cultural production? Oftentimes, I think we're seeing with like the Boyle Heights protests, there seems to be a tension between those two imperatives. Is, have you found that? Do you guys try and counter that with your work and how? Um... I mean, really, it's a question about art and gentrification. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very complicated, and I think there's a lot of shades of gray in these conversations that very quickly get sort of cast in black or white, which is a little bit about what Elizabeth was alluding to in terms of the community response to change in Elysian Valley, and that people really just didn't want any change at all. So there's this very strong resistance to anything different happening, because I think there's this fear and lack of control. You know, in the work that we do at Clock Shop, we try very, very hard to think in a complex and deep way about the programming that we do and to really engage with artists who are not only diverse, and what I mean by that is there are people who are of different racial backgrounds and different class backgrounds, but also We want to do projects that are complex and are challenging in terms of form and content. And for example, some of the projects that we've done at the Bowtie, a project with Rostin Wu, who did a series of signage projects that in a way mimic California State Park signage, but engage with content that California State Parks would never be able to do themselves. So um, he is addressing the history of the Bowtie parcel, how it was purchased, looking at um, the real estate that has been swapped over the last uh, year, and then also thinking about homelessness, who gets to sleep outside and where and what type of sleeping outside and camping is allowed legally and what types aren't. And so, you know, I like to think that the programming that we do, and I I pride myself on this, that we are actually educating people and bringing in a really different group of of artists and uh, audience members. And it's not just sort of typically what you would see in more blue chip galleries. And so I don't know. I don't know if that conversation about gentrification has really been focused in Boyle Heights, but it's not something that we've been charged with. 
I would say that we, our work wouldn't exist if we weren't reacting to and fighting the conversation of gentrification. I think the conversation of gentrification is mostly driven by white guilt, and it doesn't really have any substantiation in metrics or outcomes. And so we, you know, did this for tour report together, and it became clear that, you know, not in my backyard was an opportunity to literally build in people's backyards. So in this very space, we proposed a housing alternative, which was the granny flat. And, you know, to my co-director, she thought it was a bananas proposal because what we did is said that every lot across a block would be kind of working together to create a shared development at this alternate mid-density. And all the architects said, well, that's obviously L.A. Moss doing something very realistic. And I think it speaks kind of to the chasm between what people understand is possible for housing and these things that will affect and support the after effects of gentrification, which are displacement. I think there's a real difference between what we're actually trying to talk about doing to deal with gentrification and to support renters versus what people in creative industries are talking about doing around the conversation. So, you know, we have small business programs where we support small businesses and we do facade makeovers. So our whole practice is really based on engaging in the conversation of gentrification rather than running away from it. But I don't think we're really interested in having a conversation about it anecdotally as if it was kind of a way to round out a superficial conversation. So off guard there. (laughs) No, it's totally, I think you're really spot on. So what are the kind of other policy measures that you guys are implementing to try and make the LA River revitalization safeguarded against being just a development boom? Um, So the ramifications of the Q condition are that you cannot build, uh, I think it was, it's now 30 feet and it was 45 feet. And so what that means is the developers, if they do go higher, they have to do affordable housing. There's also no pure residential. You have to do commercial on the ground floor. So that is fantastic in that it speaks to the kind of history of making and doing an industry that's in that belt along the river. However, we're really not going to be able to see for a few years if that's going to be able to maintain the actual large-scale industrial making um, that I think everyone really wants to see maintained. What are the biggest kind of obstacles you run run against? Uh, is it bureaucracy or is it development or is it in your work, in, in your work uh, with trying to kind of maintain the integrity of these neighborhoods? Um, I just, there's not enough money going towards smaller scale projects like what we're talking about. So we, it's kind of heartbreaking to hear that the Frank Gehry master plan, you know, that they were trying to lobby for $2 million or $5 million being able to give, to give to Frank Gehry to work, you know, somewhere in Marina Del Rey on something. And all of us are working with our hands with the community and, you know, I'm thrilled when we get $5,000 or $10,000 to do a build. So, and we're working with students, we're working with kids, we're kind of breeding an alternative model of how creative people should be involved in this process. And it's really toxic to see the Frank Gehry plan being put out because it's teaching a bunch of architects that that's an acceptable way to engage with the community. So I think that the challenge is the kind of prevalent architectural culture or artistic culture versus... I think what the rest of us are trying to do, which is something more kind of granular and effective. I want to add that just, let's see, at the end of August um, on Curb Delay, there was an article that was about a development that is proposed right now and is kind of in the the pathways to happening that's right outside the bow tie. And 
It's 35 units of affordable housing, but I think it's uh, 419 total apartments um, in a space that's right now an industrial building. And, um, you know, the, the first that Sean Woods, who is my counterpart at California State Parks, or I, we learned about this through Curbed LA. And so what we're doing is basically utilizing the community and the audience that we've built around the bow tie and connections that we've made in the community to basically hold to account these these developers and how this project goes forward. You know, if people here, I don't know if you've been to the bow tie, but it's a very narrow road that you use to get to what is 18 acres of land and then possibly an additional 40, which is the G2 parcel that's immediately south. So what that would mean having 419 units in this space where people would have to drive through this very small residential community, go under the two to access their, their housing. And, you know, what, how would that affect the community that's immediately adjacent? And then who would that park, which will eventually be there, really be for? So these are the type of things that happen in this city that you know, kind of slip through. And then it's our job to make sure that, that those developers give something back, you know, or think about, okay, what, what, how is this going to affect this community? And what were the traffic patterns be? And, and um, you know, how are those little houses that are there right now, which are already jam-packed in, what, what will that be like for them? And how will they access this park? So, That's one of the big challenges that we face and something that I experience, and I know Steve experiences because we've both been in Elysian Valley for the same period of time, um, in the community that we live and work in. Um, as it develops, many people who have been there for many years are very adversely affected by new developments. Well, I'm out of time, so thank you guys very much. Thank you.